science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium. And iodine and thorium and thulium and thallium. Hey, welcome aboard to another afternoon of fun and frolic with uh, science. Uh, I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. And uh, our mission, as uh, I keep telling you, is to separate sense from nonsense, fact from myth. And uh, it's coming up to 25 years of doing this. And in fact, in May, we're going to celebrate our 25th anniversary with a a special event. Um, I'm going to be interviewed by Josh Fried. And we'll go over the history of of our office. And I'll do some demos and maybe even do some uh, magic tricks and have a fun conversation with uh, with Josh, but I'll be telling you more about that uh, uh, later. If uh, any of you want to note down the the date now, I can tell you it is going to be on May 23rd at 7 o'clock in the evening in the Automass Chemistry Building at McGill. And of course, it's all going to be free. All right. Well, let's get started today with a story about uh, Bordeaux mixture. Well, why? what is it? What would you do with it? So here's the interesting story. Pierre-Marie Alexis Millardet was a botanist at the University of Bordeaux who in the 1860s made an observation that made him the toast of the wine producers. Grapevines are susceptible to attack by what is called the downy mildew fungus. And uh, when they're infected, the vines don't produce grapes. And this fungus frolics in wet weather and first shows up as a downy patch on the bottom of the leaf. If rain persists, it becomes established and it can destroy the crop and even carry over into the next season. Well, Wintners at the time had another problem. Thieves were stealing grapes that grew on the roadside. So they had taken to spraying those vines with a mix of copper sulfate and lime. Why? Because this left a visible and a bitter tasting residue, hoping to deter the thieves. Well, Millardet noted that these vines were not attacked by the fungus, and he recommended that vines may be sprayed with what came to be called the Bordeaux mixture before they began to produce grapes. And that worked. Bordeaux mixture became the first commonly used fungicide. Well, one problem was solved, but another one appeared. And that, of course, is not unusual in the world of science. We see this all the time. Copper ions, the active ingredient that interferes with an enzyme the fungus needs to grow, build up in the soil. From here, copper can leach into water and can be toxic to fish and livestock. It also kills worms. Today, it has mostly been replaced by other fungicides such as chlorothalonil and mancozeb on grapevines, but it is still used on fruit trees, potatoes, some vegetables, and flowers. It's approved for such uses by Canada's Pest Management Regulatory Agency, PMRA. 
Because it is made from naturally occurring minerals, it can be used in organic agriculture. This in spite of the fact that toy companies that make chemistry sets will not include copper sulfate because they judge it to be too dangerous. Growing beautiful blue crystals of copper sulfate used to be a common science activity for students, but now if they want to pursue this activity, they have to purchase the copper sulfate in a health food store where it can legally be sold as an organic fungicide. Copper sulfate has other applications as well. Algae often invade swimming pools and make for greenish cloudy water. Very small amount of copper sulfate added to the water improves the clarity and makes the pool more inviting. There's another benefit. Use of copper sulfate will cut down on the amount of chlorine or bromine used to disinfect the pool. Uh, copper sulfate, as you probably know, is, is sort of uh, it's bluish color. And as I mentioned, uh, when I was a kid, I used to grow these beautiful crystals of, uh, of copper sulfate. And you can also experience the color of, uh, of copper sulfate on the roof of buildings that were originally uh, covered with copper sheathing. What's going on there? Because you know that copper is certainly not green. Copper is sort of a yellow uh, gold color. But that is a consequence of uh, pollution. It's actually a consequence of acid rain. Anytime that fuel burns, whether it is coal or whether it is oil, there is some sulfur that is released because there is always some sulfur present in those fuels. And when those fuels are burned, the sulfur converts to sulfur dioxide that gets into the atmosphere where it combines with water to produce sulfuric acid. And the sulfuric acid, of course, dissolves in rainwater and we get rained upon by what is called acid rain. And when um, sulfuric acid, H2SO4, combines with uh, copper, it forms copper sulfate and that is green. Copper sulfate is also quite soluble. So that's what you will see when roofs are covered with copper and they turn green. You can also see green streaks that come down off of the roof and color the walls of whatever building. There's another consequence of acid rain, and that is on buildings that are made of limestone. Limestone is calcium carbonate and calcium carbonate will dissolve in sulfuric acid. One place where you could see this is in the parliament buildings in Ottawa, because those are made of limestone. And over the years, the uh, acid rain has slowly eroded the limestone, and you can actually see that. You can see the limestone uh, pockmarked po with, with holes due to the uh, sulfuric acid. So there is another, you know, sort of a interesting aspect of uh, of pollution. Now, uh, sulfur is uh, uh, always present in fossil fuels. So this is a continuing problem. Uh, there are technologies available to remove some of the sulfur uh, from oil before it is burned, but those technologies are are quite expensive. And therefore, it isn't uh, worthwhile to, to do that. So uh, we just have to burn less fossil fuels. And, and I know that you've heard that song, song many times before. But uh, 
uh, it is uh, critical that we pay attention to this because, the, first of all, the amount of fossil fuel that is available to us is fixed, right? The earth is of a fixed size. So there's only a certain amount of coal, albeit there's a lot of coal that is still available, and only a certain amount of oil that is available. So we will eventually run out. Now, that is not going to happen uh, within our lifetime. Uh, but we have to think long term. And that's why we keep searching for other sources of, of energy to run our cars. And so, of course, this is why electric cars have become popular. But that then introduces another problem. As I said, you have one problem, you try to solve it, you introduce another one, because now we have to make these batteries, which require lithium. They require cobalt. Those have to be mined. There's mining waste associated uh, with, with that. Uh, we have to use a lot of water to, that has to be evaporated from these brines from where the lithium is uh, isolated. So uh, while electricity is great, it doesn't come with no problem. We'll check traffic. You're listening to Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Life's Everyday Mysteries Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, I'm going to take you back to my youth for a moment here. When I was uh, growing up in Montreal, I used to look forward to an annual pilgrimage, one of our great steakhouses, where we would be served gigantic slabs of meat hanging off a wooden plate. Then all of a sudden, authorities decided that these plates were not hygienic because meat juices could seep into the wood and foster the growth of bacteria. The wooden plates were banned, they were replaced with plastic, and steaks lost some of their mystique. It was only recently that scientists got around to testing the theory that wooden plates and cutting boards can harbor bacteria. Much to their surprise, they found that when they inoculated the wood with bacterial cultures, the wood showed a decided antibacterial effect. Some yet unidentified compounds that naturally occur in wood apparently have antimicrobial properties. So wooden boards are actually not more dangerous than plastic ones. In fact, studies have shown that plastic can develop grooves in which bacteria can grow and resist even vigorous washing. And of course, there are all the other downsides of producing too much plastic and using them when it's not necessary and putting a stake on a plastic board, I would say is not necessary. Uh, if you don't want to eat it off a wooden plate, there's absolutely nothing wrong with eating a steak off of a regular ceramic plate. Uh, so although wooden boards have been let out of the doghouse, it's still a good idea to keep them as clean as possible. Uh, rubbing the board with salt makes sense because salt has antibacterial properties. And through the process of osmosis, it dehydrates bacteria. But scrubbing well with soap also is fine. Uh, so uh, I don't think we're going to get the wooden plates back in, in restaurants. But uh, anyway, there you, uh, you get the story. And then, of course, uh, we have to ask the question, do we really want to be eating steak anyway, whether it comes on a wooden plate or on a ceramic plate or on plastic? Why? Well, we've spoken about this before, uh, about how animal agriculture is not an environmentally friendly uh, business. Uh, a tremendous amount of 
transportation is involved in the feed and in the animals themselves, in growing the feed. And then, of course, there are all the uh, health issues about eating a lot of uh, red meat. So uh, I guess really whether or not you're going to eat that steak on a wooden or a plastic plate really should be a moot point. I'm going to go even further back in my childhood for a moment. I think the first drug I ever used in my life was chamomile. It was my mother's remedy for virtually everything. Upset stomach? Well, chamomile tea. Couldn't sleep at night? Chamomile tea. Nervousness? Chamomile tea. Skin rash? Soak it in chamomile tea. Eye inflammation? Yep, chamomile tea. And my mother wasn't alone in thinking that chamomile was the most versatile of all plants. Not by a long shot. Many Europeans believed and still believe in its magical properties. While there are several types of chamomile, the one that is used the most is commonly called Hungarian chamomile, although the Germans call it German chamomile or genuine chamomile. Generally, chamomile tea is made by pouring hot water over two teaspoons of dried flowers. Just steep for about five minutes and strain, then drink. So what are you drinking? Just as with any plant product, a collage of literally hundreds of different compounds. Some of these certainly do have physiological effects. Bisabolol, bisabol oxides, matricin, apigenin, luteolin, just some of the ones that have been examined and have been found to exhibit anti-inflammatory, antispasmodic, and uh, infection-fighting effects. Of course, the problem is that the tea may behave quite differently from its isolated components. Chamomile creams, lotions, and even pills have appeared without any support from clinical studies. But based upon a great deal of anecdotal evidence, some of it personal, I have no hesitation in recommending a soothing cup of chamomile tea. No, there are no great studies on this either, but my mother told me it was good. And aside from a few rare cases of allergic reactions, it is as safe as can be. Chamomile is a member of the daisy family. Anyone who's allergic to other members of the daisy family, including ragweed, should be careful with using the plant in any form. But chamomile, of course, is not a panacea. Uh, when I get irritated by all the nonsensical claims I hear about chamomile being good for everything, claims that make me sick to my stomach, I take a couple of teaspoons of flowers per cup of boiling water, steep them for 10 to 20 minutes, I have a nice cup of chamomile tea to soothe my tummy and help me relax. Although I'll be honest with you, more recently, uh, since I, I do have trouble with sleep, so I've been reaching for the chamomile, but I've kind of been lazy. And uh, I've been using the chamomile tea bags. And I think the real chamomile aficionados would not be in, uh, in favor of that uh, because that's not the way that you're supposed to make chamomile tea. And of course, the real tea drinkers are not in favor of using tea bags either. Uh, to them, tea has to be properly steeped in, in a teapot uh, for just the right amount of time 
you know, to to uh, make it uh, perfect. And they're also very critical about the temperature that has to be used. Uh, you know, it has to be just below boiling, um, etc. And now there's another issue that has arisen with these uh, tea bags because uh, many of them are made from synthetic materials, uh, nylon. If you take a careful look at a tea bag, you will see that it is uh, uh, woven with very, very thin fibers. And uh, those thin fibers are, are made of nylon. Nylon, of course, is a plastic. And as you know, today there's uh, a lot of concern about plastics in the environment. And uh, indeed, it is true that some of the plastic from the tea bag does leach out into the tea. Now, whether or not this causes any harm is virtually impossible to determine. I think the amounts are, are too small. Although when you think of all the billions of tea bags that are used to brew tea around the world, cumulatively, the amount of plastic that leaches out may not be trivial. So there's another problem for you to worry about. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check news and be right back. It's all about chemistry. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Ask yourself this question. What is the likelihood that a former broadcast executive suffering from cancer wakes up in the middle of the night with an idea, rushes to the kitchen, takes apart some household appliances, and builds a radio frequency generator that can cure cancer, and later discovers that its instrument can also be used to burn salt water for energy? My guess is that the likelihood of this happening is very small. But this is just what John Kansius of Sanibel Island in Florida managed to do, or so he claimed. A news clip of his remarkable achievement produced by a local television station has been prominently featured on the internet, eliciting lots of commentary. Kansius, with a background in radio and physics, claimed that one night while lying in bed, presumably pondering his fate, he had a breakthrough idea. Why not introduce tiny particles of gold into the body, have these concentrate in cancerous tissue, and use radio waves to heat up the gold, which will then heat the surrounding tissue and destroy the cancer cells? It is certainly true that nanoparticles of gold, that is tiny, tiny particles, can be heated by radio waves to a temperature that will kill cells. Mr. Kansius did not explain why his gold particles would concentrate in cancer cells rather than in any other cells. But more importantly, this idea is not at all new. Numerous researchers have investigated tumor destruction by heating the appropriate tissues using various methods. Even the gold radio frequency idea has been explored. Of course, the researchers do not use just tiny particles of gold. The ones they use have gone through an elaborate process of being bound to antibodies that have receptors on cancer cells. That has some potential. Maybe Kansius reinvented the wheel, but that wheel seems to be square. Now, what about the claim of using his radio frequency generator to, quote, burn salt water? The video of the process is interesting. 
we see a sample of salt water being placed in a test tube, the tube being exposed to radio waves from its generator, and flame being spontaneously produced at the top of the tube. Looks like the water is indeed burning. Actually, what is burning is hydrogen gas produced from the breakdown of water. I must admit that I was surprised by seeing this because the only method I was familiar with to decompose water was electrolysis. The classic experiment that involves placing a couple of electrodes into water, passing electric current between them to generate hydrogen and oxygen. I was puzzled by how focusing radio waves on a saltwater sample can do this, but apparently it can. And as I found out by doing a patent search, even this idea isn't novel. A US patent has been granted for using certain radio frequencies to generate hydrogen from water. I'm not sure what is happening here chemically, but I'm sure of one thing. John Canzius did not invent a new source of energy. The energy it takes to generate the radio waves is more than what is returned by burning the hydrogen produced. So while there is some interesting science going on here, the implication in the circulating video that uh, we're gonna be running cars that burn salt water, that's sheer nonsense. As I suspect, so is Kansius's cancer cure device. It certainly did not work on him. Uh, Mr. Kansius died of leukemia, passed away in 2009, but his idea did not die with him. According to uh, its website, Neotherma Oncology, which is a company, has applied to the FDA to begin human trials. The company owns the patents on the Kansius technology, and uh, this was sold by the Kansius family after John's death. The company says the device will be tested on humans with pancreatic cancer. Well, we'll see what that does. Uh, it's unlikely to do much, but uh, who knows? Who knows? There, there are stranger things that have happened. For example, how a bird's nest killed the whole family family that rented a holiday cottage in England. You want to hear that strange story? Sure you do. The birds had built their nest in the chimney, which blocked the flow of air and resulted in a buildup of carbon monoxide when a fire was lit in the fireplace. Oxide is produced alongside carbon dioxide anytime gasoline, wood, oil, or natural gas burns. The amount depends on the availability of oxygen. The more limited the supply, the more carbon dioxide forms. It is an insidious poison because it has no smell or taste, but can cause headaches, nausea, breathlessness, and obviously even death. Basically, it kills by depriving cells of oxygen. Carbon monoxide, like oxygen, can bind to hemoglobin, the molecule in red blood cells responsible for oxygen transport but it binds more than 200 times more strongly than oxygen, meaning that it actually displaces oxygen from hemoglobin. The effects of inhaling carbon monoxide were first studied by J.B.S. Haldane, the British physiologist who unraveled many of the mysteries of respiration. Although an excellent scientist, Haldane was pretty foolhardy in his investigation of carbon monoxide. He used himself as a guinea pig 
and carefully documented symptoms as he inhaled increasing concentrations of carbon monoxide. He also took blood samples and attempted to correlate the symptoms with the amount of carbon monoxide in his blood. When the concentration reached 27%, his vision dimmed. By 40%, he was exhausted and on the verge of fainting. And when the carbon monoxide concentration hit 56%, he could no longer walk. Wisely, he decided it was time to stop. Good decision, because it has been learned since then that at 60% saturation of hemoglobin, there's loss of consciousness, followed by death. Luckily, Haldane suffered no permanent damage because the binding of carbon monoxide to hemoglobin is reversible. Inhaling oxygen will displace the bound carbon dioxide. Not everyone is so lucky. Uh, you remember Vitas Gerulitis, the tennis star? Well, he died of carbon monoxide poisoning when he slept in a room next to one that had a faulty swimming pool heater. And of course, we still hear stories of people who accidentally leave a car running in the garage and uh, the carbon monoxide seeps up and uh, they are overcome by it uh, in a nearby bedroom. We hear tragic stories uh, like that. And then of course, there um, are other tragic stories that involve using uh, carbon monoxide as a means of uh, committing suicide. And um, you know, you've seen this uh, countless TV shows and movies where someone will attach a hose to the uh, tailpipe of a car and then run it into the car through a, a window, mostly closed window, just open enough to put the pipe through. And then they sit in the car with the doors closed and uh, of course, eventually are overcome with the carbon uh, monoxide. Terrible uh, business. And uh, unfortunately, carbon monoxide is highly toxic and it has no smell. So having a carbon monoxide detector in the house is a good idea. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. English surgeon Sir Percival Pott was the first to link cancer to a specific occupation. In 1775, he noted that chimney sweeps had a high incidence of scrotal cancer, unusual disease that was later termed chimney sweeps carcinoma. Eventually, studies on animals demonstrated that benzopyrene, a chemical that occurs in high concentration in smoke and in chimney soot, was the cause, making benzopyrene the first proven chemical carcinogen. Dr. Pott did not agree with what was called heroic medicine that was being practiced at the time. And uh, this heroic medicine aimed to shock the body back to health by bloodletting, purging, and sweating. He was critical of many treatments, especially ones based on folklore. That's why he vigorously attacked Joanna Stevens as an ignorant, illiberal, drunken female savage. So. Who was this woman, the recipient of such vitriolic verbal assault? Joanna, the granddaughter of a physician, 
had no formal education, but that did not stop her from dabbling in various home remedies. When a close friend died of urinary retention because the stone blocked his urethra, she sought a solution and claimed to have found one in a mixture of charred eggshells, charred snails, soap, and various herbs. This came to the attention of David Hartley, a medical practitioner who suffered from stones himself. Out of desperation, he tried the remedy. It worked, and after collecting evidence from 10 other sufferers, Hartley became an ardent promoter and published a pamphlet, A View of the Present Evidence for and Against Mrs. Stevens' Medicines as a Solvent for the Stone. This created a demand that Mrs. Stevens recognized as a money-making opportunity. She offered to publicly release the recipe if she were paid 5,000 pounds, staggering amount at the time. Gentleman's Magazine organized a collection, but came up short. Then, at Hartley's urging, Parliament agreed to come up with the money if proof could be provided that the remedy worked. Mrs. Stevens arranged for the recipe to be given to the Archbishop of Canterbury, who organized a committee of doctors, scientists, and politicians to follow four men afflicted with stones who would take the treatment. All four improved. Mrs. Stevens was paid the money, and in 1739, her remedy was published in the London Gazette with the title, A Most Excellent Cure for Stone and Gravel. Indeed, it could have worked, at least for some stones. Eggshells and snail shells are made of calcium carbonate that with heat releases carbon dioxide and forms calcium oxide, that is known as lime. This is an alkaline or basic substance that when consumed raises the pH of the urine, that is makes it less acidic, and can help dissolve uric stones, one type of bladder stone. Soap is also alkaline, so it could also have contributed, although the added herbs were likely useless. Dr. Pott was right about the problems that plague chimney sweeps, but calling Joanna Stevens an ignorant, illiberal, drunken female savage without considering the evidence was, what can I tell you? Uh, That was ignorant. Uh, guard. you've probably used it. Such an interesting material. And of course, there's a story there. When jet aircraft were being developed after the Second World War, there was a need for specialized rubbers that would not deteriorate when in contact with jet fuel. In 1953, Patsy Sherman, a young researcher, was hired by the 3M company to specifically work on this project. At the time, chemists already knew that molecules that contained lots of fluorine atoms were unreactive. Indeed, the carbon-fluorine chemical bond is one of the strongest known, Teflon, example of fluorinated compound, was already known at the time, but was not suitable for flexible. Sherman then set out to work on fluorinated materials which had rubber-like properties, and one day, her assistant spilled one of the experimental compounds on her brand-new tennis shoe. She became quite agitated when she was unable to get the stuff off, no matter what she tried. It withstood her attacks with water, soap, and various solvents. The assistant's laboratory accident, though, allowed Patsy Sherman to stumble into a discovery. Of course, as has been said, one can only stumble when one is in motion. 
and Sherman's research certainly was. She was immediately taken by the ability of the substance to resist attacks both by water and oil. Everything rolled off it, just like the proverbial water off a duck's back. This was a truly unusual phenomenon. Immediately, Sherman saw the potential of her fluorinated compound as a stain repellent and sought the help of fellow 3M chemist Sam Smith to develop a formulation that could be applied to fabrics. Soon, a fluorochemical polymer was ready for the market and met immediate success as Scotchgard. Juice spilled on the rug was no longer a family tragedy. Even Rover could relax in peace on the couch. The Scotchgard bandwagon rolled merrily along for some 40 years. Then it came to a screeching stop. Researchers had found perfluorooctanyl sulfonate in drinking water, human blood samples, baby eagles, dolphins, and even polar bears. How did it get there? Well, the stuff was used to make Scotchgard. It was known to be released when the protective material broke down. What was surprising, though, was its persistence in the environment. The levels were low, but perfluorooctanyl sulfonate was everywhere. The Environmental Protection Agency became concerned because in high doses, the compound was toxic to test animals. 3M protested that there was no evidence for human health hazard, but nevertheless declared that it would stop production of Scotchgard for environmental reasons. The fabric and carpet industries were horrified, but 3M declared it would come up with an appropriate substitute, and it did. The active ingredient is uh, fluorochemical urethane, supposedly safer. Uh, not everyone agrees, because in general, any compound that is fluorinated tends to stay around in the environment and becomes what we are coming to refer to as a forever chemical. So anyway, that is the story of uh, uh, Scotchgard, which is indeed an interesting one because it all came about as a result of what at that time was deemed to be a happy accident. We are out of time, but rest assured, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.